Global consumerism is a $40 trillion a year phenomenon, which makes it the largest, most predictable investment opportunity on the planet. Who are the prime beneficiaries of global consumption trends? Mega brands. Welcome to the Mega Brands podcast series. I'm your host, Eric Clark. In this podcast, we explore mega trends through the lens of a global investor with the ultimate goal of identifying the most relevant, most innovative brands that are best positioned to become what I call mega brands. These are the brands that are customer obsessed, have a corporate culture of innovation and self-disruption, create products and services that are in high demand, that exhibit strong brand love from customers, are serving a global opportunity and appeal to multiple demographic groups. What's the reward for a company that meets these criteria? More revenue, more cash flow, higher market share, and the potential to reach the trillion dollar club. Please enjoy our next episode of Mega Brands. Eric Clark is the portfolio manager for the Rational Dynamic Brands Fund in conjunction with his partners at AccuVest Global Advisors. All opinions expressed by Eric and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of AccuVest Global Advisors or Rational Funds. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of the Brands Fund or AccuVest may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hey, everybody, this is Eric Clark with Mega Brands. Today is Wednesday, December 14th, right before a big soccer, aka football game, uh, in about an hour. So I'm super pumped. I know Sean is. Uh, every uh, every so often, we catch up with uh, Sean Emery of Avery and Company, the founder and CIO. And uh, I'm sure you have followed him on Twitter. Um, super smart uh, asset allocator. And uh, want to catch up on 2023 and maybe some thoughts on 2022 with uh, with some thoughts on some individual stocks. Because, you know, I know everybody's focused on macro, but individual companies actually still matter, even if the market doesn't pay attention. What's up, buddy? How are you? Isn't that something? Yeah, companies are still, you know, doing company things this year. So um, <laughs> hopefully that translate in 2023 and beyond. And, and, and you know, where I'm from, they call it uh, uh, football, you know. Um, yeah, I know. I know. I'm a, <laughs> yeah, my uh, my experience with uh, with soccer is when I was playing football back in the day, if I made a you know, if I didn't hit somebody correctly or make a tackle, my my goofy coach would scream. Uh, if you're going to hit like that, why don't you go over to the soccer field? <laughs> <laughs> well, and that favorite... was where we were. Yeah. One of my five years ago. One of my favorite memes of 2022 had to be uh, when the, the euro was below the dollar. Um they there was a meme that uh you know now it's called soccer uh no longer football and uh, that that has to be one of the top uh, memes of 2022. I, I'm enjoying the World Cup a lot, man. I uh, I'm really hopeful that we see France and and Argentina in the finals. So we'll see. Should be fun. So let's let's have a little fun. Uh, if you were to describe 2022 in your world in a few sentences, how would you describe it? Maybe you could do it in one word. I don't know. I'll give one phrase. It was a lot of bark, but no bite in terms of, uh, you know, what the impacts of everything that people were worried about, you know, in January, February, March, and how's that's translated into, uh, you know, the health of a lot of these businesses that are out there. 
Yeah, it's funny. You you uh, you see, I did a, a call with a broker dealer this morning. I'm, I'm on their call every their squawk box every quarter. And uh, man, when you see the damage in some great businesses, and you're like, you look at the fundamentals, and you, and and there's literally been very little, if any, damage. And in many cases, business has gotten better. You go, well, okay, clearly we we know the market uh, acts in advance, so it's sniffing out potential things that might happen in 2023. Plus, the multiples had to come down, but I I think the way the multiples have come down has has been pretty lazy. It's just been a sell everything rather than sell what might have been smart to sell. Um, but we'll see, we'll see. So so talk to me about 2023 then. Do you do you think we get back to some normalcy? What do you what are your thoughts across the business scape, maybe within the macro and the Fed and all that kind of stuff? And, and then we can talk some names because I know everybody loves individual stocks. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot there. You know, I think uh, in many ways, 2023, you know, if you thought it was a lot of bark, no bite, I think uh, 2023 could be a lot of uh, the opposite of it, right? I don't even right, know what right. the, the phrase would be, but essentially, you know, the macro situation could look a little bit worse than 2022. But I think, you know, from a company perspective, you essentially, an evaluation perspective, you start stripping out some of the, the headwinds that existed in 2022. Um, you know, if you just go down the list of all the headwinds, I think most of them uh, in 2023 become, I think it's hard to say necessarily a tailwind, but stop becoming a headwind. Um, and that's everything from, you know, I think it it starts and ends with, you know, the supply chain all the way to uh, uh, the cost of, of things, of goods and services, um, all of that becoming much more friendly to business, to margins in 2023. And uh, the question there is, you know, if if the economy is, you know, average at best, um, what does that ultimately mean to the pricing power that a lot of these companies have while the cost of their goods are coming down at the producer level? Uh, and, you know, I think that is, call it a tailwind, call it less of a, a headwind for 2023. Um, for us, you know, a lot of the companies specifically, that were, you know, software oriented or anything that benefited during COVID, 2022 was always going to be the year that lapped kind of the strong period, which means 2023 will be much more of a normalization phase for those. I think 2023 is going to be really, really hard for the ones that had struggled during COVID, had a really strong 2022 and are lapping that. So they're going to go through that same process. Call it the, you know, anything travel related, call it anything, you know, energy related, um, they're going to have tough comps. I mean, it was a tough comp year for a lot of companies in 2022. It was a tough currency year in 2022, assuming the dollar stays where it is today, that that starts to become, call it a tailwind to uh, revenue for 2023. You know, and I can go down the list of many of these things, but like freight rates, 40 foot containers, goods go on them, they get to us. Those are below 2019 levels. If you follow me on Twitter, then you know I, you know, I give out those numbers all the time. Uh, used cars are plummeting. Those are going down as well. Um, and I have the belief that, you know, deflation is on the horizon. It's not because I have that opinion. It's just just math. You know, if we if we keep hitting 0 0.1, 0 0.2s uh, month over month on CPI, which we know is already lagged. And, you know, if you actually used a real-time data like, you know, apartmentlist.com or Zillow for rents, you know, last month, this previous CPI would have been negative at the headline level. And ultimately, what that means at a point one, you roll that out 12 months, you're 
your sub 1.1, 1.2% on CPI. And uh, we all know the Fed doesn't necessarily land things perfectly. And uh, sub 1% is not some a place they want to be. You know, when you're a highly indebted economy, you don't want to have deflation. You want to have inflation in a sense or some level of inflation. Um, so I do think, you know, we, we should be talking about the second half of this year is, is deflation. And what's the playbook for that? You know, five years ago was the playbook. Right, right. I mean, you know, I, I, I we all see that we all see all of the bare data points. They're, they're all, most of them are valid. We see them. You know, what bugs me about this persistent bear narrative and nobody knows the future. Everybody seems very, very, uh, very convinced of what's going to happen in 2023, all the way from strategists all the way down. But bearish sentiment is pretty like persistent, in my opinion. I see it on Twitter. I see it talking to advisors. I see it in the put call ratios. I see it in sentiment data. You know, so so the probability of recession over the coming 12 months for this Philly Fed survey of professional forecasters has never been higher. So, you know, what what's intriguing to me is what if things aren't as bad as people expect? Well, some most of the time, the best gains happen when things go from horrendous to slightly less horrendous. And so when you have such bearish positioning, which in a portfolio and everybody's leaning and persistent and confident, almost cocky in that bear boat that sets up a, you know, a, a case for people having to right size positioning, which is a lot of money coming through a narrow door at some time in equities. And you've seen a little bit of that the other day when the market was up 700 yesterday, when, the, when we gave it all back, I mean, I know the brand strategy was up like 8% that one day when the market ripped 1200 points. Like that tells you how offside positioning is. So any potential good news or less bad news is going to make people de-anchor from that bearish positioning. And that's just a lot of money that, that probably has to do that. And it probably happens in a short period of time. So it's going to be a very interesting wild ride in 2023, but I'm just looking forward to getting back to actual company data rather than macro data driving everything. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like macro is easy. Well, it's not easy to like invest behind it specifically, but it, it's easy to say, you know, rates are up and uh, or inflation's higher and, and you just quickly have one single playbook, which is the 70s. And, and you know, throughout the first half of this year, that's all you heard was the 70s, 70s, 70s. Uh, in terms of what this is or was and how it would play out. And it just simply isn't that, uh, but in, in many ways, um, you know, we're still talking about here getting into the fourth quarter, GP, GDP now cast is, is tracking, you know, 3.5%. Um, last quarter was two point something. And yes, we can adjust for different inventory and import and exports and, and get a normalized number. But I think what you're ultimately going to find is 2020, 2022 was actually a, a fairly decent year from, economic activity, a lot of that driven by the amount of savings pent up in a lot of accounts that still exist today. Uh, and that wage growth, you know, while is squeezing relative to inflation and the price of goods is still holding up relatively well. Um, and we're at the very tailwind of, of rate hikes, it seems, um, with maybe another 75 to go, maybe 50, who knows? But, you know, I think we're hopefully landing this plane nicely 
the narrative of the 70s is just totally out of whack. That was an oil energy crisis that lasted almost a decade. This year, right now, as we sit here today, oil's down for the year. Um, and that's just a fascinating thought uh, as, you know, if, if that was the narrative of the 70s and oil's down for the year, I don't know where you, where that person is to uh, to to talk about, you know, 2023. And 2023 relative to 2022 is much more negative in terms of if you just hear streets consensus um, views or just the noises that are out there. Um, so just like you just said, I think sentiment is very skewed and then the headwinds are turning into not headwinds or, or in some cases, tailwinds like the dollar or something. Um, and you know, that sets up reasonably interesting if you're just going top down. Yeah. I mean the, the fed and this is the last comment I'll use on, on the fed. Cause I, if you follow me on Twitter, I bash the fed pretty much daily. It's my new <laughs> job. I enjoy it. it. It's mental health uh, for me, but you know, before 2000 and what seven or eight, it used to be that GDP plus inflation is where rates should be, <laughs> right? We, we, we've gotten so de-anchored from that and it's become, it, it's been so long that we've been focused on the new normal. But if you go back to the way it used to be for a long period of time, we're, the Fed's, I, I, the Fed will never admit this, but the Fed is just getting back to where it should have been all along. And that's a good thing. Crappy companies don't get funded. Bad companies go out of business. Like, Cost of capital matters. So in my opinion, this is just a trip back to normal. And this is their way of saying, we, we screwed it up for way too long and we're going to right the ship and inflation is the catalyst for it and you know, deal with it, everybody. So I, I think that's probably a good thing. So let's talk stocks because that's really what matters ultimately, the business, the earnings growth, et cetera. Um, let's talk about Nutanix because it's a name that most people still don't really know, myself included. It's been a good performer. Um, you've been, you were really early on that train. So talk to me about Nutanix and give us an update there and what you, what you see for that business. Yeah. Nutanix, uh, stepping back real quick is, you know, we invest in, you know, structural growth areas and transformation areas with a single kind of point of view is that companies have a single decision to make, invest where the world is headed. You're either going to get left behind or you're going to create the future kind of uh, mantra. And, you know, the side of transformation stories, which is a company that is, you know, a pretty good company, probably a leader in their space, good brand, specifically within their 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 category, um, has to transform. And, you know, going back, you know, three and a half years ago, going back 10 years ago, 12 years ago, when they were first founded by Diraj Pandey, uh, basically this was a, you know, it's called hyper-converged infrastructure where they collapse what's called three-tiered architecture, which is your, you know, compute networking and storage. Um, you know, all companies have to handle their data somewhere. Um, historically, it's been in, you know, their own facilities where they, you know, they buy servers and, and, and computing power and, you know, they put these things together, they store it, they manage it. And for many years, this was three different, uh, uh, systems, hardware systems. And what uh, Nutanix pioneered 10, 12 years ago was hyperconverged, putting that all into one single physical um, uh, hardware product, and then essentially wrapping it with, you know, uh, software, software defined infrastructure um, is what it tends to be known for across, you know, different areas. Um, so anyways, going back to the, the point is they converge that into one product, one hardware, that was the origin of, you know, the first uh, half of their life, which was selling the hardware, selling the software, 
Um, they went public, uh, you know, five and a half years ago or so, and very uh, highly anticipated uh, uh, IPO at the time. I knew about them. I knew somebody that that worked there. I knew, you know, what they were doing. Um, I tracked VMware, which is their competitor. And ultimately what happened was, you know, um, they decided to stop selling the hardware. And this is where the, the transformation started to occur. So you drop the hardware that came with zero gross margin. You have software only business essentially. So you, you drop basically half your revenue, but that revenue came with no gross margin. Um, so you, you dropped half your revenue, but you kept, you, or you raised your gross margin at the, at the company level. So they went from, you know, 60% gross margins to 80% gross margins, essentially overnight revenue collapses. So artificially it looks like revenues is falling pretty dramatically at the same time. They used to sell their licenses, their their software on a term basis. So you know, you buy fee- five years in advance, you you pay up front or you pay later, uh, but you pay up front ten million dollar contract. You pay today, and you know um, that's kind of how the cookie crumbles. With that, they switched that to a subscription software services subscription software subscription. Sorry about that. Uh, phone's ringing, but that's the right. uh, software. So, you can hear me? Yeah, we're good. Yeah, I can hear you. Software subscription. And that ultimately meant, you know, now you're recognizing revenue ratably over time. So think of traditional stuff that we all talk about today, which is, you know, Salesforce and and Zoom and and many of the other companies that sell software as a service. Um, so that 10 million is now, you know, they, they win a $10 million deal, but it's recognized ratably over time. So here you have two transformations at the exact same time. It's a jumble mess. It's a, actually a, a product category that most people don't understand. It's a perfect place to like dig in and say, hey, maybe there's something here. Um, and at the time, they had a lot of cash on their balance sheet, uh, no debt. And uh, we understood the transformation. We understand that they were the product leader. Their contracts you know, were five years in, in length. Um, so they had these moats that were there, you know, product category leader and happy customers and, and customers that were uh, contractually there for a while. Um, anyways, the, uh, fast forward a couple years through that transition, we start to get involved. This is a couple years ago now, um, where we were interested in, we, we were seeing some evidence that the, the transition was occurring. Bain then took a stake, um, in the business as well, got around the, the, the board and, and started to execute. Well, they brought in Rajiv Ramasamy, who's the CEO. He was at VMware, um, to lead the, the charge today. You fast forward to today. Here's a company that is 100% software subscription, uh, three and a half year kind of uh, contract lanes. They just had their first full year of free cash flow positivity. Um, they're 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 basically going from a cycle of getting new deals to because it's software subscription. The the, the subscription nature of it is the renewal side of this business, which is you know the cost of a renewal. So you have a customer that's three and a half years old. Three and a half years comes up. You don't have to make a sale. You don't have to do that that hard sale anymore. It just renews like everything else we do in life. That comes at 90% or 10% of the traditional sale. And ultimately what that means is every renewal comes at a fraction of the price. So profitability on a go forward basis starts to uh, move much higher as they hit these renewals. They're in about year one of the renewal cycle. They have uh, a lot of their base that still has to renew over the next couple of years, which is why they're able to look at their base today. They're 20,000 plus customers. 
forecast when these renewals come up and forecast essentially 300 to 500 million dollars in free cash flow in two years from now um and you know so we just think that the street has been offsides there's rumors of a it's more than rumors now it's wall street journal now it's bloomberg now it's a lot of people um that uh uh, somebody's going to acquire it. We've we've highlighted, and it's a full dis- uh, no di- uh, disclaimer here, I guess. Um, not a, a recommendation, but just in general, that uh, HPE could be a potential uh, acquire. That's public. We've always thought that. Why they're strategic partners? They're they're, they're they won the premium partner award for HPE this year. They're GreenLake uh, as a service product. And um, anyways, that's kind of like the the you know the full circle of of who Nutanix is and and kind of the origin story and how we got there and and where they are today it's they're they're not getting hit by macro it's a wonderful story um and it's only getting better if they get taken out then then so be it we'll see uh, what the price is if if not we think they can be a standalone business generating significant cash flow and and uh rewarding shareholders over time in our our view right i mean listen what plenty of companies are working on something that you know, is different and needed, and it takes some time for the market to accept it and recognize it and the stock languages. And then all of a sudden that realization happens and the thing hockey sticks. So, you know, the, the stock's gone from 14 to 33 since July. So <laughs> maybe that's, maybe that's part of the realization or acquisition. Who knows? Yeah, no, no, it's part of the, uh, the realization. I think people are starting to realize it. And they're one of the only companies, many, like one of the very few companies out there that I, that I think have just totally said, you know, we're not seeing anything on the macro side. We're hearing it from other people. And there's, right. you've, you've heard that anecdotally, but it's not showing up in, in anything. Well, let's, let's go to the, the, of course, natural transition to luxury. No <laughs> consumer <laughs> with Capri. <laughs> I mean, yeah. well, I got a question for you. What one, you know, I, I we own LVMH. Um, they are primarily our horse in the, in the luxury category, kind of the mega brand of the category. We've earned, uh, we've owned Hermes, you know, once or twice in the past. Um, why do you think Capri just suffers from this, what I call the conglomerate discount? I mean, Jimmy Choo um, is, and Versace are doing really well, but then you have the Michael Kors stub, which is, you know, more of a stable, predictable grower. I mean, like, what, what is it about Capri that just doesn't get the love where, and the premium multiple that, that other, you know, premium brands do? Yeah, look, it's been getting, it's starting to get the love, you know, last yeah. year when, when people are starting to convinced about the, um, their success in, in acquiring those two companies, Versace, Jimmy Choo, and, and executing incredibly well for those two. Um, I actually think it's the opposite where Capri and that, I understand like, I, for sure the, uh, you know, the conglomerate discount happens in different areas. I think it's more beneficial to this space in general, like, um, just given that, you know, a brand in theory could be much more fickle than, you know, a, a GE that has, is a conglomerate and, and owns a bunch of, uh, you know, sells dishwashers and, and airplane engines. Um, now, as of, you know, the last year and a half or so, two years, the, uh, I, I think a lot of focus has continued to be on the Michael Kors brand, just given that it makes up still like 60% of all revenue. Um, so, while it has three brands under its its belt, it's it's still dominant from this the the one, right? And there's historically been questions around the Michael Kors brand. The Michael Kors brand now is is executing really well. You know, twenty five percent operating margins back to its kind of old days. 
they've raised their revenue target for that brand. Um, and so I think as Coors continues to prove itself, Versace continues to grow incredibly well. Um, you know, Versace's on its on, on the path to a two billion dollar company, uh, revenue company with you know the LVMHs, the Hermes, the the Richemonts of the world. They have their 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 kind of true luxury like a Versace has 35% margins in some cases higher, you know, they're targeting 20, 25% for Versace. The real, the reality is that can get higher than that. You take a $2 billion business, which they're on their way there. If you, if you stripped out currency this year, which uh, Versace got hit by like 20%, just because they're international, a lot of international sales. Um, I mean, you're talking about a business that's probably already doing a $1.8 billion run rate this year, growing at 20, 30% with 20% margins today. I mean, just do the math on on a two billion at a you know twenty percent yeah. margin, and that's basically this the uh, the total of you know Capri's equity value in its business. So you're either getting Versace for free and Jimmy Choo, or you're getting Michael Kors. Right. However, you want to frame that. Um, but we think over time, as Versace and Jimmy Choo grow, and th there's more distribution across brands, I think actually you'll see a an uplift in in multiple, and then eventually potentially a uh, uh, another acquisition to bolt on another uh, brand to this thing. Yeah. And they've, they've been pretty good capital allocators buying back stock when it's cheap and misunderstood. And so, yeah, I mean, that, that one's definitely on my list. We own Deckers, similar kind of that story where Hoka huh. to me, the, I mean, you can't like everywhere in my house is filled with Hoka between my daughter at 12 and my grandparent and, and, and uh, my grandparents at 75, there's Hoka's everywhere that, that brand they finally stopped making goofy looking shoes uh, <laughs> color wise and, and they're getting a lot more popular. So the UGG is like cores, that stable, predictable thing that, that people keep underestimating that's still doing well. And then you have some fast growth around there. Listen, I know you got to you got to hop in about 13 minutes. So let's do some rapid fire. Uh, a couple of names that have really struggled with some, you know, in the in the in the world of high higher multiple not as much profitability, adjusted metrics. Let's talk about Fiverr and, and Zillow for a minute. Yeah. Um, Any thoughts, you know, updates, misunder, you know, market misunderstands, you know, whatever. Yeah, I, I think it. a lot of it has to do with, specifically for Fiverr, um, is the misunderstanding. And there's still a lot of people that there's not a lot of awareness of what they do. Um, there's that. Um, number two, it's, it, it gets pushed in that cohort of... Uh, you know, a company that benefited from COVID and, and um, you know, in the multiple high multiple categories. So, you know, a lot of 2022 has been factor driven, you know, companies or investments that are, you know, more systematic in nature and Fiverr just gets thrown in that bunch. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, here's a company that is runs a marketplace, the leading like freelance digital service marketplace in the world. Um, and as we all know, marketplaces are hard to create. They're hard to break. Um, and this is one that is still in the early days, just given that, you know, freelancing in general is, you know, 95% still happening offline. And similar to how we all used to do commerce uh, offline only, um, they're trying to, and they are in a sense, you know, providing a uh, marketplace for digital services, similar to how Etsy does it for, you know, hand goods and how uh, Amazon does it for a lot of things now. Um, the company's doing well. I mean, they've proven that, you know, even if 
they slow down their pace of growth investments that they can they can show operating leverage. So over the last several quarters, they've been able to do that. Um, you know, they generate free cash flow uh, in theory overnight if they really truly wanted to. Um, this company could have you know their targeted thirty percent operating margin. Um, how do you know that? Well, they have a clear uh, in, uh, uh, what's called TROI time return on invested on investment, uh, which is their, their sales and marketing dollars that they budget. Essentially every dollar they put in, they get back in essentially a quarter. Um, and they've shown pretty sticky cohorts, uh, cohort of customers. So they bring on an active customer on the platform and there's a long tail, long history of how much they spend as years progress, uh, over time. And that's anywhere from, you know, three to six X, uh, several years after that cohort comes on. The, the, the most important part, I think, of Fiverr for, from our point of view is that they went from roughly 2.5 million buyers, people that go on the platform, buy a digital service. So you're buying like a logo, you're buying someone to check your resume, you're buying someone to uh, um, review uh, one of your blog posts, you're, you're buying someone to review your website um, and look at and give you opinions. Um, there's even tax consulting going on. There's people creating social media advertising for TikTok as TikTok blew up. Um, but for us is, you know, pre-COVID 2.5 million active buyers on the platform, 4.2 uh, million that, that is uh, uh, active buyers on the platform. Today, it's 4.2. They've held that 4.2 million active buyer base on the platform post-COVID while also increasing the average revenue per buyer. Um, so you've seen more buyers, more spend on the buyers. They're really focused on Fiverr business, which is bringing bigger, more sophisticated businesses on the platform that um, uh, they, they have a, a cohort of 10 people that spend $10,000 or more on the platform every year. And that uh, cohort is growing 50 plus percent year over year. So they're seeing more activity on the on the low side or on the big side of, uh, of the type of buyers on the platform. So everything is trending in the right direction. They, they, they benefit. So they're typically seen as small business sensitive. So if you're talking about economic uncertainty, things like that, that's another layer on in terms of the, the um, I think the anxiety around some of the space, you know, the Shopify's of the world, the Wix's of the world, the, the Fiverr's of the world, anything small business related over the last um, year or so has been hit despite, you know, a lot of these companies actually showing some pretty good resiliency at the business level. Why? Because I think these are structural trends. Um, that actually exists that, you know, there, when we come out of uh, this cycle in a sense and, and move into the next cycle, even Mika Kaufman, the, the founder CEO has talked about, they typically are early to see signals, both with directions. Um, and you're already seeing, I mean, they've already said they've, uh, you know, the active buyers on the platform and the activity on the platform, um, they're seeing uh, stabilization and, and potentially reacceleration here uh, over the last several months as people, you know, have been concerned about rate hikes and the economy and things like that. So all of that in a nutshell, you know, for us says, you know, a lot of freelancing it will continue to go digital, digital. They are the leading marketplace out there. They're executing well, they're showing operating leverage. Um, every down cycle adds more layers of talent on the platform. They're seeing their best and record levels of talent on the platform today. That's what they called out last quarter. Why? Because there's layoffs happening in some of the best companies. So some of the best talent is available. Anyways, that's in a nutshell, Fiverr um, and kind of an update. One one quick, uh, I'm, yeah, just yeah. The, I'm just looking at the chart. Uh, this this one, I, I've been building a, uh, 
tax loss opportunity basket Mm. and Fiverr is absolutely in in that basket. This one looks like a ball held underwater. (laughs) Like when I look at this chart, there's there's positive divergences across MACD, RSI, all that kind of stuff. I think there's a group of names that are just just going to rip sometime in Q1 just for a trade. Let everybody else do their own work. This has nothing to do with fundamentals, but Zillow's chart looks exactly the same as Fiverr. Obviously, there's a lot more negativity surrounding real estate now, but you know, quickly, I we only have a couple minutes. Um, you know, what, what's Rich Barton, you know, is, is now an idiot. His, uh, (laughs) company is worthless, you know, blah, blah, blah. So talk to us about the, you know, no fear, uncertainty and doubt just about Zillow and real estate, what your thoughts are there. Yeah. So, so it's very similar to Fiverr in terms of like the sensitivity to the macro, obviously housing direct like comparison with Zillow, right? So you see rates go up, uh, housing activity, you know, uh, come down, um, and that's hit the whole, uh, you know, anything in real estate uh, that's that's out there in the markets uh, has been hit. Zillow's held up better than those, but obviously not <laughs> relative to the rest of stuff. Right. Um, you know, here's a company that, you know, a year ago, people were, were kind of semi laughing at them for exiting the iBuying business. Um, fast forward a year, you know, all the iBuying businesses are struggling immensely. So Rich Barton, I think, was um, smart to see what was potentially on the horizon, meaning he didn't want to be in this over-levered business as rates and, and housing potentially goes the other way. Um, so again, a, a guy that's created, you know, Expedia and and, and Glassdoor and, and Zillow proves again that he is has much more foresight than, than many uh, while he's getting laughed at. Um, anyways, that sale of the iBuying business is, is strategically important here because what that has done is essentially as they liquidate a lot of that those homes, they're done doing so. They're sitting on $3.5 billion of cash on their balance sheet and in a really, really strong position to build out, build out their business of essentially trying to be the housing super app. And again, not using the buzzword housing super app like you're doing everything on there. It's, it's essentially just trying to have more transaction activity happening on this platform because 200 plus million people visit this thing on a monthly basis. Um, billions of traffic come to this website on a quarterly basis. This is easily, you know, one of the premier internet assets in the world with a robust balance sheet, a leader that has foresight. Um, and they're still in the early days of, of creating monetization on the platform. So they bought something called showing time last year, which is a touring app. They believe the tour, which is essentially connecting agents to a, a buyer, um, and, essentially lifting the connection between those two via scheduling tours. Um, and what they've seen is, you know, a multiples uplift in the amount of monetization that happens on the platform, well, whether it's, you know, closings, mortgages, um, the actual transaction itself where the, the agent is actually chosen as the agent um, to buy or sell a home. Um, today, they have a lot of the buyer's activity. What they're trying to do as well, you know, there's six plus million homes sold, five plus million homes sold in a given year. And there's two sides to that equation. There's the buyer and seller. And historically, they've attached the, um, to the buyer. And they recently made that partnership with Open Door, which is essentially what we're probably going to see here in the first quarter, maybe second quarter, which is the, uh, uh, we'll see what it ultimately looks like, but an Open Door type of uh, button inside of Zillow, uh, which essentially shows, you know, I want to sell my home. Um, and what that ultimately does is give Zillow signal. And that's the most important part is signal of who is a seller. 
uh, and that opens up the door for them to transact, to monetize the other side, the other five, six million people that are buying or selling their homes to the five million people that are buying their homes. Um, and those transactions today, you know, they're going to take a uh, a small fee uh, from that. If they don't end up selling at the open door, uh, a, a, a Zillow premier agent would essentially get attached to that. And uh, again, it opens up the door to further monetizing this platform. This has historically been a very asset light business, high margin business. Today, they're investing a lot with that with their balance sheet, um, giving a lot back in terms of also buybacks. So they bought back a lot. Um, Rich Barton is highly aligned. I mean, he has, you know, he owns like 14, 15% of the business as well. So he's feeling the pain um, on it. So, you know, as the cycle, you know, investing through the cycle, Zillow's investing through the cycle. If you're an investor in this, you know, here's a company that's trading at, you know, single digit multiple of its cash flow. Um, and we know that even as transaction volume has come down, they've been uh, shown the ability to actually maintain operating margins at a pretty high level. Um, so we, now we know the peak margin, we know probably somewhere around the trough margin. Um, and, you know, they're building a pretty strong engine um, from touring to eventually mortgages and closing. So it's a pretty fascinating story in our view. And we think they're, you know, they're the premier internet asset while everyone is folding. I don't think it's a coincidence that when times get tough, Open Door is now a friend, not a foe. Right. Uh, Redfin is now a friend, not a foe. They license basically... Uh, uh, um, uh, Zillow's 3D tour technology on on that platform. Showing Time is the number one touring platform. Um, so you know Zillow is at the core of this. They always have been, and I think when times got tough and there wasn't free money out there, um, it was it was you know is Open Door going to take over Zillow? At the end of right. the day, that was never going to happen. And I think when times got tough, now we're seeing who's the the king of this. Uh, we'll castle. see if Open Door goes the way of Carvana or Open Door goes the way. I mean, I, I, it's going to be very interesting. But I, I think the asymmetry in this name is pretty favorable for Longs at this point. I mean, there's been, just been some ungodly damage to certain names that that got pushed down way too far, and tax loss selling at the end of the year is probably part of that. So that Definitely. one, I have a feeling we're going to see some very interesting Q1 rippers at some point. So you're right. <laughs> listen, man, I know you got to hop uh, happy holidays. Thanks again for your insights. And uh, let's, uh, we'll do something again in Q1. Yeah, let's and go, do it. Go France, baby. Who, who you think? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, it's not the two teams I wanted. So right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm now, now I'm just a outside spectator. There you go. All right, buddy. Happy cool. holidays. All right, Eric. Same Talk here. To you. Bye. Thanks for listening to Mega Brands, everybody. I'm your host, Eric Clark. For more information on this podcast and to learn more about the brand relevancy scoring system we use, be sure to check out the website at globalbrandsmatter.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for the market newsletter and check out my latest thoughts on our favorite portfolio brands in the Dynamic Brands section. If you have any questions or want to learn more about the Dynamic Brands approach, send me a message on the contact tab. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Have a great day.